Welcome to the Shadows of Noir podcast, a place for movie fans to discover, learn, and discuss all things film noir. My name is Dan, and I am a classic film fanatic with a longtime passion for the complex world of film noir. I'll be your main guide for this show and our accompanying website that you can find online at shadowsofnoir.com. Today is episode two, The Birth of Film Noir. Now, birth might not be the best word. Perhaps beginning or development is a little more appropriate. But in any event, our plan today is to zoom in on the 1940-1941 years where film noir really begins to take shape. Now, we went through many of the influences of film noir in our last episode, the majority of which began well before 1940, but it's largely agreed upon that the 1940-1941 span is really where we have some major strides and pivotal films that, in hindsight, begin to really show us that something new was in the making. So we'll start by touching briefly on those influences again, and probably even more briefly, we'll set the scene by reviewing the state of the film industry and the world events of the time. Then we'll get into some specific filmmakers who begin creating something different on the screen with everything that happens to be going on. We'll talk about a few specific films and the innovations that can be seen when you watch them, and that would end up becoming very prominent features of what we now call film noir. And we'll wrap up our discussion around the end of 1941, where many of the pieces had been put in place for the classic era of film noir that would end up running for roughly two decades. So let's get right into it and start with reviewing some of those influences that we talked about in episode one. Now we had RKO horror and the Italian neorealist cinema influences, which kind of came a little bit later after the 1940 to 1941 span. So we'll put those on the back burner for the moment and we'll just review that we had American hard-boiled crime literature that was gaining significant steam around 1920 with the introduction of the Black Mask publication. And then we had German Expressionist Cinema, which ran from the early 1920s up through the early 1930s. Um, There's a little bit of debate on that exact time frame, but roughly in that range. And then in the 1930s, we had the Hollywood gangster film, primarily coming out of Warner Brothers, and we had the French poetic realism films, which were good forerunners for many of the themes that would show up in film noir in later years. And just as quickly as we reviewed those film noir influences again, like to set the scene a little bit in the film industry for that 1940-1941 span, where we would just start by saying that 1939, 1940, 1941, we are still smack dab in the middle of the studio system in Hollywood. So we have the eight major studios, or more specifically, we have the five major studios, the three minor studios, and we have moguls running the show, Producers and directors have a lot of power. Stars are gaining some power in terms of what they can negotiate with the studios, but for the most part, they are still on contract with specific studios and don't control a lot of their career. 
Now, in addition, we've had sound in the mix for about 10 years, a little more than 10 years, actually. And the production code of the 1930s had been established as a way for Hollywood to somewhat self-police themselves and avoid any governmental censorship. So 1939 was one of the biggest years in Hollywood. So you have, in 1939 alone, The Wizard of Oz, Gone with the Wind, Stagecoach, Wuthering Heights, Ninochka, Gunga Din, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Just a lot of really revered films when we look back at the studio system and the history of Hollywood. And in fact, if you go to the AFI Top 100 list, you'll see many of those films from 1939 on there. And in addition to the films that were coming out, we also have a robust distribution system. We have lots of theaters. Weekly attendance per capita was, by today's standards, just through the roof. In some concise words, we could say that 1939, the United States was movie crazy. And with that popularity, we have one star in particular from the theater and radio side of things that tries his hand in this massively popular film industry. And that was Orson Welles, who's going to be a very important player in the development of film noir. And so with all of that going on in Hollywood, also coming in 1939 is the unofficial start to World War II. On September 1st, Germany invaded Poland, and in very short time, both Britain and France had declared war on Germany, and the conflict that would end up altering the course of modern history had unofficially begun although it would be more than two years before the United States would officially enter into the war. And so with that backdrop, we get into 1940. And the first movie we're going to discuss hits the theaters in January, and that is The Grapes of Wrath. Now, The Grapes of Wrath is a little bit uncommon to mention in a discussion about film noir. So I would say just stay with me. Any of you film noir purists or enthusiasts out there, there is a reason for discussing The Grapes of Wrath. And primarily, that is so that we can get into Greg Tolan. Although, The Grapes of Wrath, if you go back and look at it, we would assert that there are lots of stylistic forerunnings to film noir. And that goes to, as we said, Greg Toland, who was the cinematographer or director of photography for The Grapes of Wrath, who was from the United States, came up through the ranks in Hollywood. And interestingly, as we talked so much about German expressionism and that influence on noir visually and stylistically, Greg Toland was somebody from the United States who brought a lot of those photographic elements that we would end up calling noir style to the screen in 1940 and 1941. So let's take a few minutes and talk about Greg Toland. Now, if there is anybody out there who knows of a good Greg Toland book or documentary, please 
put it in the comments, uh, send an email to dan at shadowsofnoir.com. I'd love to take a look at it. The American Society of Cinematographers has a wonderful article that was written by George E. Turner, and that is the basis for most of this information that I'm going to speak about for Greg Toland. Now, as I said, Greg Toland was born in the United States, and he was in Hollywood in the early days. We're talking about 1919, that he was working at the Fox studio, and very specific to our discussion in relation to film noir, I'd like to point out that in the 1920s, Tolan became the second cameraman to another cinematographer, and that was Arthur Edison. Now, Arthur Edison was the director of photography for the Maltese Falcon, and we'll get into that later, but there's the connection early on. And the influence that Edison had on Tolan, specifically filming from below eye level, was very impactful. So that is something that you'll see in films shot by Toland or Edison that becomes a mainstay of noir visual style. And actually, there was another connection that came in 1935 when Toland ended up working on the film Mad Love, which was another iteration of the Hands of Orlock story, which was a 1924 German Expressionist film. And the director of the 1935 Mad Love iteration was Karl Freund. And he was one of the most important directors of photography in German Expressionism. So he came over from Germany after having photographed films like The Gollum from 1920, The Last Laugh from 1924, and probably the most well-known is Metropolis from 1927. So again, Greg Tolan gets to collaborate with a little bit more of a senior filmmaker and pick up on many of the techniques that are used. And he starts to develop his own style, his own repertoire that would really be evident in 1940 when The Grapes of Wrath hit cinemas. And now beyond just the visual style of The Grapes of Wrath, there are a lot of story elements that are forerunners to film noir as well. Just to, you know, pick up a few, we have an ex-convict. So there's the crime aspect. We have very much a road movie. Obviously so much of the film is based around the trek to California. We have social issues that are on the screen. We have the downside or the American dream gone bad shall we say. And with those themes and the visual style coming from Greg Toland, and of course, we can't forget to talk about the director, John Ford, but we have a good combination and a very important film, in our opinion, for film noir's generation. And now sticking with Greg Toland, the film that came out in the fall of 1940 was The Long Voyage Home, again directed by John Ford, and you have the director of photography being Greg Toland. And that film, if you do have a chance to watch it, we'd highly recommend it. It really is 
visually stunning. It was beautifully lit. There are some really great contrasts in black and white cinematography. You have a lot of long shadows and very much things that will come into play in film noir. And while the story or the themes of The Long Voyage Home probably don't have as much of an overlap in terms of film noir as The Grapes of Wrath, it probably is even more visually representative of film noir as a precursor. And to take a little bit of a sidestep, so we have Greg Toland, who came up through the ranks in Hollywood. He had some collaborations that helped him develop his visual style, and he made two films with John Ford in 1940 that were forerunners of film noir visual style. But actually, a couple months before The Long Voyage Home hit theaters, we have another film that we would be absolutely remiss if we did not discuss in this episode about the birth of film noir, and that is... Stranger on the Third Floor. So Stranger on the Third Floor was directed by Boris Inkster, and the director of photography was Nicholas Musaraka. And if you want to talk about some of the most important and talented cinematographers in the history of film, Greg Toland, Nicholas Musaraka, right up there. So Nicholas Musaraka photographs Stranger on the Third Floor, which many people would cite as the first quote-unquote true noir. Now, just to reiterate one of the things that came up in the first episode, at Shadows of Noir, we really don't want to take any firm stances on timeline, definitions, films that should be considered noir, should not be considered noir. It's all about what it means to you, in our opinion. So if you feel that this is the first film noir, or if you feel that the Maltese Falcon is the first true film noir, whatever it means to you, it means to you. We just want to open up the conversation. Now, we mentioned that Stranger on the Third Floor was photographed by Nicholas Musaraka, and he actually had a little bit of a collaboration history as well, just like Greg Toland, where similarly to Greg Toland learning under Karl Freund from German Expressionism roots. You have Nicholas Musaraka learning under Joseph von Sternberg earlier in his career. So again, German Expressionism being a backdrop to some of the early filmmakers that would make precursors to film noir and the very first film noirs. And so Stranger on the Third Floor is a little bit of a victim of circumstance story and a little bit of a search for truth story, I think you could say. So we're just going to touch on it briefly here. Don't want to give any spoilers away. During the podcast, we will do our very, very best to try and forewarn anybody if we're going to get into a film so much that it's going to give away part of the plot or integral pieces of the story and ruin it for someone who hasn't seen it before, i.e. spoilers. We will try and give you a heads up ahead of time. Uh, We'll not do that here with Stranger on the Third Floor. But when we get into more deep analysis of films, we probably will be doing that. Just a heads up. So Stranger on the Third Floor, like I said, victim of circumstance story and a search for truth story, which very much revolves around people being falsely accused of crimes. So we'll, we'll just leave that there in terms of the plot. But other things to note are visually, you have a lot of harsh contrasts and shadowy lighting. 
a lot of claustrophobic interior shots. There are quite a few mirror shots showing different perspectives of things. There's a famous dream sequence, and you also have an excellent role from Peter Laurie. So as not to give too much away, we'll kind of leave that there. In general, I think that we could say that Stranger on the Third Floor no doubt had many things going for it to call it the first film noir, but I would say in general, it's probably a little bit more overt in terms of the innovations and how much they are pronounced on the screen. Whereas if you were to make the comparison with the Maltese Falcon, for instance, much more subtle and cohesive to the story, as opposed to perhaps a little bit of an exhibition of innovation, like Stranger on the Third Floor could be described as. And really not trying to take anything away from Stranger on the Third Floor, I would recommend going out and seeing it if you're a fan of film noir, but it is a little bit different in terms of caliber of film. I think it's safe to say when you compare it to the Maltese Falcon or some of the other really essential noirs of the earlier classic era. So in 1940, to recap, we have The Grapes of Wrath, we have Stranger on the Third Floor, we have The Long Voyage Home, and also we have, in production, Citizen Kane. Now we talked briefly about Citizen Kane in the first episode, referring to it perhaps as the single most important film in the development of film noir in 1940-1941, and we will get into it more in depth now. So, Citizen Kane was directed by Orson Welles. Now, I think today there is a little bit of a polarization around Citizen Kane, where you have some people who, Citizen Kane doesn't really do it for them, or they don't really see the greatness that other people see when they watch the film. And you also have historians and critics who will just swear by Citizen Kane and assert that it is the finest film ever made. And it is a little bit tough to talk about Citizen Kane with that kind of polarization, but I would just probably preface this discussion where Citizen Kane is a lot more about how the story is told and how it is filmed, more so than the actual story. And I think that There is a little bit of that distinction with, if you're looking at the story itself, it can be easy to overlook or not really see what other people see in it. But if you're looking at Citizen Kane more so in how it is told, then you are much more inclined to appreciate the film. So directed by Orson Welles, released in 1941, Again, I'd like to call out uh, a great work that was the basis for a lot of the knowledge that we have about Orson Welles, and that was a biography by Barbara Leeming, which I have an audiobook, listened to several times. It is really excellent if you have a chance to listen to it and want to learn more about Orson Welles. It's listed on the references page on shadowsofnoir.com, along with our other major references. So in any event... Orson Welles was primarily a theater person early on and eventually moved into radio as well 
in the late 1930s and really had just a little bit of experience in terms of film. Largely was of the belief that movies were essentially capturing plays or capturing the theater. Not a great understanding of what could be done with the camera or with editing or in other ways that makes film a unique medium. And in 1939, Orson Welles was in need of some funds, shall we say, and he decided that he was going to jump on the motion picture bandwagon. He was going to head out to Hollywood and he signed a contract with RKO to make two feature length films and it was largely to make money to finance more of his creative theater projects. And interestingly, the contract that he signed with RKO was very famous in terms of its creative flexibility. They essentially gave Orson Welles, somebody who had not made a feature-length film, as nearly complete creative control as is conceivable in the studio era. So as long as RKO approved the projects that Orson Welles presented to them, they did not technically, according to the contract, have the right to interfere in the production. And moreover, when Orson Welles submitted the final project, they did not have the right to edit or change a single frame of that project. It was, as he presented it, in true director's cut fashion, his film. And naturally, that invoked a lot of resentment from the established Hollywood directors who had never received a contract like that. But interestingly, there were also some established Hollywood filmmakers who really took Orson under his under their wing, so to speak. John Ford was very friendly to Orson Welles when he first got out into Hollywood, also King Vidor as well. And one person in particular who thought that Orson would likely have some really innovative, creative ideas in these first few projects was, dun-da-da-dun, Greg Toland. And he actually went to Orson Welles and said, I would like to work with you. And while Orson Welles did get a quote-unquote crash course in filmmaking upon arriving in Hollywood, reviewing the material that RKO had put together for him, talking with people about filmmaking, also reviewing certain films ad nauseum, Stagecoach by John Ford. He watched many, many times. He also sent away for a print of The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which was yet another connection to German Expressionism. And he watched that extensively as he was learning how to make movies. So it was a good foundation for him, but the fact that Greg Toland came to Orson Welles and wanted to work with him because he thought they'd have some innovative ideas turned out to be just this outstanding collaboration because Orson Welles had indeed very interesting ideas about what he wanted to do with his project, but he really needed the technical expertise of a seasoned veteran like Greg Toland. So 
In the summer of 1940, Citizen Kane goes into production. And it tells the story, again, not to be a spoiler for this story if you haven't seen it yet, but it tells the story of an investigation into a very famous man's life. And it's all about the way that they told that story. When I say they, I mean Orson Welles and the rest of his collaborators on the film. So they wanted to do it in a very audience subjective kind of way. So there is a very um, key character and that's a journalist and he's digging into the life of this famous newspaper tycoon. And that premise in it of itself is very much going to be repeated throughout film noir in the classic area. But in addition to that storyline and how it's framed, you have a journalist who is often in the shadows and kind of facing away from the camera. So the audience is almost standing in for that journalist. And that subjectivity was really the goal of Wells and how he wanted to tell the story. And it was really brought to the screen and materialized because of the technical expertise of Greg Toland. And in addition to that unusual subjectivity, it's put together in a flashback sequence from the perspectives of many different people that were a part of that famous person's life. So you get different perspectives, you get a jumbling up of time, and you get the audience standing in and learning about this famous man in place of the person who is actually on the screen doing the investigating. So quite unusual. And then on top of that, you add in all of the visual effects and innovative set design, lighting, camera work, editing, etc. that take this story and tell it not only in a uniquely structured way, but also in a uniquely visual way. And just to return back to our film noir discussion and highlight a few of those visual stylistic choices that would end up becoming forerunners to film noir, you have deep focus where you have things that are in the forefront of the frame and farther away from the camera, both in focus at the same time. And that gives a real sense of depth to the shot. You have objects obscuring the camera in the foreground. You have actors that are blanketed in shadows. You have directional expressionistic lighting. You have low camera angles that are looking up and showing ceilings, giving you this sense of claustrophobia. And then a lot of jarring close-ups. You have long takes. That was a little bit more unique to Orson Welles' style than a a film noir tenant. But so many things that were very unusual for the time, very innovative, and part of this impactful film that really broke through and allowed other people to start making some other innovative choices in how they're making their films. So I think you could say it was largely a catalyst. It brought this new sense of innovation and allowed people making films in Hollywood to test the waters with different things. And they drew on a lot of those 
choices that were made in Citizen Kane and apply them to these darker stories that would come to be known as film noir stories. And so Citizen Kane hits the theaters in May of 1941 amidst quite the controversy, and we won't get into that here, but it shakes up the movie world and it becomes a little bit of a breakthrough in terms of what filmmakers are going to be trying on the screen, the way they're going to deviate from the conventions, the way they're going to experiment, and the way they're going to push movies forward in terms of the visual style, the narrative conventions, the visual motifs, and many of the other different elements that would start to come together in this new way in what we now refer to as the classic era of film noir. And so we're now in the summer of 1941. We're heading into the fall of 1941. And in the fall of 1941, Three movies in particular come out. Two we'll touch on pretty briefly. One we'll take a little bit of a deeper look at. And the first one that we'll touch on is Ladies in Retirement. Now, Ladies in Retirement comes out in September of 1941. And it's actually featured on the Criterion channel right now. And would be remiss if touched on the Criterion channel and didn't give a, a big shout out to the amazing work that the team at the Criterion Collection does on a day-in, day-out basis for the world of film. But to return, in November 2023, when this episode is going to be airing, it is featured in one of their collections actually entitled Noir by Gaslight, and it is kind of a bridge movie, I think we could say. It's definitely a good forerunner of noir, but it also is a lot of the gothic Elizabethan um, Wuthering Heights kind of feel to it as well. So it stars Ida Lupino, the absolutely infinitely talented Ida Lupino. And it's actually rurally set, so a little bit different than noir norms of city set right off the bat. But the story is very noir. And Ida Lupino plays a wonderful antihero character amidst a an interesting story, and you also have plenty of noir lighting. You have noir claustrophobic interiors uh, that are set, even though it is in a rural location, it is mostly set indoors. So uh, perhaps not a film that gets talked about regularly in terms of film noir's development, but definitely an interesting one that we would recommend seeing if you have the time. And certainly falls into the realm of this discussion where we're talking about things coming together and the bridge coming from older film conventions into newer film noir territory. So about a month after Ladies in Retirement hits the theater comes the big one. And when we say the big one, I say it because it is so often cited and talked about as the first film noir or the start of the classic era of film noir. And that, as we have alluded to, is The Maltese Falcon. So The Maltese Falcon comes out in October, and it had gone into production during the summer, uh, noting after Citizen Kane had been released. And The Maltese Falcon was based on a hard-boiled detective 
novel by Dashiell Hammett that was first published in Black Mask in serial format and then made into a novel. And it had been made twice before for the screen. And this was the third iteration. So it goes into production in the summer of 1941, directed by John Huston, written by John Huston for the screen with the help of one of his screen writer friends. And it not only is a great film based off of a great novel, but it is done by first-time filmmaker John Huston and with collaboration from Arthur Edison, the cinematographer. And the story is told so much in the noir tradition that we would look back on and define today that many, many people just go to it directly and say that it started the cycle. It was the first real breakthrough. I think if you pinned us down, we would have to say from our perspective that it is certainly the first film that you watch amongst the ones that we have been talking about, where you get that feeling that, yes, this is film noir. This is what is going to be built upon for the next two decades. This is absolutely in that realm. So many of the things we've talked about before have pieces, um, have certain areas that are foreshadowing. But when you watch The Maltese Falcon, I feel it's safe to say that you are really in noir territory. If you look at the 1955 analysis of film noir by Board and Chomaton, they definitely cite it as setting the conventions. And a 1972 essay by filmmaker Paul Schrader highlights it as the beginning of the film noir cycle. And if you look at other work done by film historians Alan Silver, James Arsini, they also reference it as well. It is just very widely discussed as the, I guess you could call, tipping point from where forerunnings and hints at noir had been building from previous 18, 24 months into a film that breaks through and gives that feeling that you are watching something different. And not only something different for that moment, but something that would be built upon and developed further into hundreds of films that we go back and cite now as part of this cycle. And we're going to hit the pause button on the Maltese Falcon, actually, and not get into too much of the story or the background with it, because that is actually the plan for the next episode. So first couple episodes have been largely focused on film history, and um, apologies if it's a little bit of a lecture-type feel, but I think the... um, nature of having a solo podcast is a little bit of, you know, dictation, talking at you kind of thing. Um, We are going to have guests on this podcast, but just not in the first few. But in any event, the plan for the next episode is to move from the film history lens much more into the deep film analysis lens. So we'll, we'll take a real, real long look at the Maltese Falcon 
and dissect it. And yes, there will be plenty of spoilers in there. So if you haven't watched it, uh, we would suggest watching it before you listen to the next episode. But returning to the discussion at hand, Maltese Falcon comes out in October 1941, based off of a hard-boiled novel. And another movie that we want to quickly touch on actually went into production at the same time as the Maltese Falcon. It just came out in the theaters a few weeks after. And that was I Wake Up Screaming. And you have a very complex story, which would become a mainstay of noir storytelling. You also have the lens of the police investigation, whereas the Maltese Falcon is going to give you much more of the private eye investigator type story. So they both stylistically are very much within the film noir canon. They came out kind of side by side. Wake Up Screaming was just a little bit later. It certainly gets overshadowed when you look back and compare the two. It doesn't get talked about quite as much, but it if you are really interested in the early days of film noir, it would be one to take a look at and see how you feel relative to it coming out just about the same time as the Maltese Falcon. And so to recap and sum up today's discussion, we started out very briefly. We set the scene leading up to 1940, both in terms of the film industry lens and the world event lens. We discussed Greg Toland, the legendary cinematographer, and his collaboration with John Ford on The Grapes of Wrath and The Long Voyage Home. They both came out in 1940, and why those two were so stylistically significant when we talk about the genesis of film noir. And we also talked about Stranger on the Third Floor from 1940, which many people feel is the quote-unquote first true noir um, and would cite it more so than the Maltese Falcon that we discussed later. But again, whatever it means to you, if you if you watch it and feel like it's noir, that's great. If you really don't get that feeling of true noir until you watch the Maltese Falcon, that's great too. Really encourage you to hop over to the website at shadowsofnoir.com. We have the articles and discussion areas where we can talk about this kind of stuff and really have some good conversations. So then we moved into 1941. We talked uh, quite a bit about Citizen Kane and the breakthrough collaboration between Orson Welles and Greg Toland. And we finally finished up in the latter half of 1941. We touched on Ladies in Retirement. We gave a little bit of a preview for the Maltese Falcon, which is just so incredibly important to this discussion. And we touched on I Wake Up Screaming, which went into production the same time as Maltese Falcon, but came out slightly after. So we're really leaving off in the fall slash early winter of 1941. And actually, it would be the uh, events at Pearl Harbor in early December 1941 that would end up changing not only the world, at, at that moment, but also the trajectory of this newly budding development that uh, has become known as film noir. 
and we will certainly get into how that changed a little bit during the World War II years in another episode, but we'll, we'll leave it there for the moment. So thank you very much for listening. And if you're enjoying the first few episodes of the podcast uh, and looking to help us out, the most valuable thing at this point is really just to help spread the word about the show with people you might know who may enjoy it. We have our website again at shadowsofnoir.com, where you can check out the written articles, jump in, discuss the topics. You can subscribe to our newsletter if you want to stay up to date on things. And lastly, we just launched a Patreon channel as well, and that link is in the show notes and on the website, where you can help support the work financially if you'd like to. And as an added thank you for the Patreon subscribers, what we're going to do is we're going to do an extra monthly episode, and it's going to be an AMA, or Ask Me Anything show, where exclusive for Patreon subscribers, you can go in there, ask as many questions about film noir, subjects, histories, movies, anything you want, and if we can research and speak to them, we will do so in a monthly episode and get a little bit more of a back and forth with the people that really want to be engaged with this kind of material. So we'll do our very best to research something if we don't know it, but if we do know it and can speak to it right off the bat, we'll certainly talk to it. Um, but yes, hope, hopefully that will help spur some engagement and anybody who's enjoying this material, wants to learn more, wants to discuss more, you can hop over there to Patreon as well. And that would be a, a good added bonus for helping us out um, with, it was just, we just set it at $5 a month for, for the time being and anything, anything helps. So I'd like to thank once again, and I uh, hope you come back for episode three. Like I said, we're going to be shifting a little bit. We're going to be going more from the his history perspective into the world of film analysis, and we're going to dissect the Maltese Falcon. So until then, I'd like to invite you to, again, go out and watch some film noir, hopefully some of the films we talked about today. We feel that they're, they're very interesting, and uh, I think uh, you'll like them as well if you enjoyed today's discussion. Thanks again. Take care.